Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I am so excited to announce that I've teamed up with Mark Nathan to bring you the Consumer VC Summit. It's going to be from October 13th through 15th, and will be three days of discussions, talks from some of the top investors in CPG. So some of the industries we're going to be focusing on are food and bev, beauty and personal care, femtech, cannabis. There's going to be also lots of networking opportunities. And if you're a founder, we're going to have one-on-one mentoring sessions with investors. To get your tickets, head over to summit.theconsumervc.com. That'll also be located in the show notes. We cannot wait and we're excited to see you there. Our guest today is Yuri Lifshitz, founder and CEO of Openland, a modern social platform for communities. Yuri is a serial entrepreneur founding Zonaspace, Blended Labs, and Entangled Solutions. On this episode, we talk about Openland, how he thinks about the future of online social, how he thought about friction when downloading a new app, and pivots. Without further ado, here's Yuri. Yuri. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. So let's start a little bit about your story. Like how did Open Lands come together and what was the synthesis or problem that you're trying to solve with your innovative social platform? Yeah. So Openland was a white combinator backed company. We went in 2018 in a batch and we raised two and a quarter million dollars for a completely different idea in real estate. We were building a marketplace to buy land for new construction. And after closing the round and start building the full product, we realized messaging between businesses would be a big part of it because complex real estate transactions require coordination between buyers, sellers, tenants, lawyers, financial organizations, future tenants, government officials. And we realized there is no really fully built business to business messenger. Slack is within one organization and things like Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp more for personal use. So like there was no B2B Messenger on the market and actually still is not. And so also my co-founder, he was like building messaging apps his whole life. And I was building communities my whole life. And so 
realized, okay, great. So we have the understanding how kind of communication works and how to build communication products. And then we realized maybe we should just go all in on messaging and just even stop focusing on just real estate verticals, obviously not the first vertical to adopt new communication apps. And so we made that change and luckily our investors supported that decision or did not object that much. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we spent two years very quietly building the all-purpose modern messenger that's comparable feature by feature with WhatsApp, Facebook, Telegram, and the likes. And our current focus, like where we found like the biggest entry point is communities. As everyone can see, 2020 is the year of community. Every business, every influencer, every media company, every educational organization is thinking how to turn their audiences into communities. And um, we found that the biggest kind of fastest growing use case in Openland today is community building. That's awesome. So with when you were building Openland, I know that first you were thinking about the B2B side when it comes to building communities. Now, is that still your focus or you're also building out more like consumer facing communities as well? Yeah, so we evolved on this. Initially, we were building a professional B2B messenger because we felt that there are abundance of personal messengers and lack of business-to-business -business professional messaging. Like no one likes LinkedIn messaging and there is no, nothing else close. However, we learned two things. One is that there are actually not two categories of messaging, personal and professional, but three categories, which are personal, professional, and social, where social is talking to new people based on their interest. It's something in between. It's something like equivalent of meetups and conferences and festivals. It's where you meet friends of friends and things like that. Because in traditional kind of private personal messengers, there is no discovery mechanism. There is no global search. There is no people you should chat with. There is like no easy kind of like recommendation. Like on WhatsApp, like if an unknown person messaged me, I don't even know their name. I see like a phone number or something. So we realized, okay, so there's social messaging, which is like in between personal and professional. This is where we grow right now most of all. And second, we found that there is an emerging group of people in hundreds of millions that can be called independent professionals. Actually, people like you who like uh, sometimes one person operation can be a podcast, can be freelancer, can be a remote worker, can be a career changer, can be stay-at-home parent, can be immigrant, can be a student in search of a first job, just regular students actually kind of and, and so on. And so those independent professionals, they have very blurred lines. When they talk to other people, they actually don't know whether they would become co-founders and just friends or they will go, you know, hiking or they will go build a hackathon project. So it's very hard for, for independent professionals to actually keep the lines and they use Openland kind of as an all-purpose place, like both personal, professional and social. That's awesome. That's awesome. In some ways, it's almost like bundling the three in a funny way or thinking about it with like the personal and then also a bit more on like, like an event where you meet other people that you might know, but there's a similar theme to a group. That's great. And I totally agree with you that no one likes LinkedIn groups. I don't know anyone that really actually uses them. So I feel like when I open up my Twitter account, I feel like I, I hear so much about community and building community. And sometimes I feel like audience has been replaced by the word community. I know we're going to talk a lot about community today. Want to know if we can just take a step back and first talk about how you think about an audience and how you think about community and moving forward, how you think people are going to be building communities online. Yeah. So we actually think that building audiences and building communities is parallel skill sets. So some people are better suited for building audiences and some 
better suited for building communities. So building an audience, that means primarily broadcast model. The creator produces content that is consumed by a large number of people and maybe get some reactions or likes or replies, but generally does not commit to read every reaction back. And it's primarily one-way broadcast distribution model. This is where we see people from entertainment industry, big athletes, politicians, traditional media like New York Times and so on. Community is a place where members talk to other members and where creators and organizers are in service of members. And that means it's a two-directional communication where, and also I would say that a lot of audience building is a clear single person kind of operation, a leader, someone who creates content like a musician, a band, a politician, whatnot, while community building is much more kind of a team sport. So the typical creator of a community is actually a team, not an individual. So it can be like five people, four people, 50 people. And that's how communities get stronger. This is why like conference organizing, you rarely see a single person organizing a conference. It's typically a team. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And thanks for explaining that. So it seems like everybody wants to build a community, whether you're a brand, whether you're a company, whether you're someone like me, who's a podcast host, right? In terms of building community, which I really enjoy doing. What are some things that you've seen that have worked? Because I know that on open land, there's hundreds of, or if not thousands of communities on there. And so you're able to really see a lot of different case studies in terms of what works. I just would love to hear some stories. So there are so many lessons. The first lesson is the team lesson. So before you launch a community, you need to have the organizer, community builder team. I recommend two to five people at least. I've seen communities started with a team of 30 or more. So uh, there are different, different roles within that kind of starting group. Some people are more credibility lenders. So they would lend the credibility, their personal brand and trust to the community. They would not actively moderate in chats or producing a lot of content, but they would put a stamp of approval on the community. They can be like an advisory board to the community or they would invite their followers to community because the people who really run communities, sometimes they kind of audience poor, they energy high, they empathy high, they they're organizing, like they have good psychology and other skills, but they don't have the built-in audiences. In many cases, the community creator would lease an audiences or like from like advisory board or from promoters or like the, the people, the other co-organizers. So very much like a new podcaster would kind of draw audiences from their guests. And yeah, so get some people who can bring you audiences, get the organizing team. We've seen most communities would start with organizer chat. So it's, it's just the people who want to build a community. There might be five people and they would just hang out in a chat. And this is really important to have like high trust between a small group of people. Once you have kind of the organizing team, then what works is a focused launch. So it's not something that you add 100 people every day. You try to maybe aim for high hundreds, low thousands in the first few days, like first three days. What it makes is it creates a liquidity of communication. It allows people, once they enter the community, seeing other people live in real time, responding to their content. And especially if it happens to like a new app or even like new Slack or whatever, new Discord. So it really helps when other people are alive and online. So when you got people in, most of the communities would start with introductions chat. So that's a place where everyone self-introduced themselves. You can have like a template for introduction post. You can like automate the request for writing an introduction. And generally, I would say 20 to 50% members would introduce themselves. 
So you would expect a big number of people who would be reserved early on. They think like they are. We are just observed. We're just checking this out. And this is normal. This is normal. You don't force them. They might kind of activate late. Once the introductions are made, this is really helpful because people start direct message each other because they start seeing intersections. They start seeing common interests. They can comment each other. Like on Discord, you can't comment, but on OpenLand, you can. So like, this is like helpful. On OpenLand, you also can hashtag, use hashtags in introduction posts and say on Slack, you can't. So we have a lot of features that kind of help with that stuff. And then once introductions are made, the second thing that works is kind of weekly live streams or like live streams a few times a month, kind of meetups. And what helps is basically a live stream in parallel with live chat. So when it's live stream alone, it doesn't work that well because one person is talking and say 50, 25, 100 are listening. And that makes it less interactive and less engaging. And people start, you know, cooking and eating and cleaning their homes or doing multitasking. And so they hosting each other. We've seen a lot of people kind of host like a Zoom call in parallel with OpenLand Chat or YouTube live stream with OpenLand Chat. OpenLand Chat is very helpful than built-in chat in Zoom or YouTube because you retain the full history. People who were not on the live stream can still read the messages. You can post the questions up front. You can direct message people in the chat. You can meet new people during the live stream. You can upload files and preview them or you can, again, use hashtags to kind of organize what people are asking for. I've been on so many Zooms where something interesting happened and then the host just ended the meeting before I can copy who was in the chat and what they said and whatnot. And it's the same with YouTubes or like whatever other. So having the open land hosted kind of live chat in parallel with your online events is really, really kind of make things more permanent, searchable and make more in, in community connections. So I'd say like live events and introduction chats, those are the two very basic activities. Another basic activity that happens a lot is Q&A. So if there are experts in, in the community who can answer questions or give feedback, portfolio reviews, pitch deck reviews, or you know, you upload some materials or like healthcare kind of consultation, obviously not traditional healthcare where you need to be certified, but something around kind of I don't know, maybe nutrition or weight loss of them, stuff like that. Cool. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, because one of the things that I've been part of, as we probably all are, part of a few, you know, Slack communities, on some of them, I feel like, you know, the first week, there's a lot of engagement, a lot of interaction. And then it really dies down pretty quick. And there's not, I would say like, I guess on that front, what are some, because you've spelled out really how to even think about building a community initially online, what are some things that just haven't worked that you've seen actually fail? Yeah, so agree. Uh, many Slack and Discord-based communities die very quickly, become kind of ghost towns and people forget. So things that, in my opinion, don't work. One is what I call island model. So Slack and Discord are an island model. Every community is an island and they're very separated from each other. While on OpenLand, it's more like a mainland. You have a single account, single inbox, single settings, a single profile, and that really helps you to be present in multiple communities and have a single inbox and over time shift your focus less on the big chats and more on uh, small groups and individual relationships. It's very hard to shift and continue individual relationship on Slack in social context. Like, I met with you on some Slack, but which Slack I used to message you? <laughs> like, <laughs> this is, this is it's like, okay, we might share three slacks with you, like which of those three? <laughs> While well, in open land, obviously you have just single direct message to every person. This is super easy. So that's, that's one thing. So I would say island model don't work for casual community participation. So if you're all in, if it's your only community, if it's the community where you're fully dedicated, then yes. But what happens is it's a little bit like cable TV model where you have a, two communities where you like hardcore core member and there are 10 communities where you're a casual member. 
And if everyone is a core member in a different community and casual member in other communities, then it would be really hard if you optimize only for core member participation. So OpenLand optimizes for casual participation so that you're allowed to be in multiple communities casually rather than in one community hardcore. So Discord and Slack is more like only if you have one community and one community only and everyone in that community is a hardcore participant of that community, then it works. Like in a team chat, if you're at work and you have a team of 10 people and that's your kind of hardcore community, everyone is full time there, then yes, Slack is great. But if it's like a casual community for most people, then no, that works. So another something that doesn't work is, I would say starting community alone. So if a single person starts a community, it's really hard. And because too much work, too much moderation, quality control, organization, like meetups and whatnot. So luckily, OpenLand gives uh, free community managers for organizers. So if you want to start a community with us and you are serious and you have a good idea, good topic, and maybe some existing audience, we give you a supporting community manager who will work alongside with you, help you set up everything and plug things in. Maybe you like you're sleeping and they will respond like basic questions around kind of how things work and whatnot. So we provide like high quality support that kind of relieves the pressure from organizers and Slack, Discord don't do that. So again, kind of another reason to use OpenLand. Another reason to use OpenLand. Um, no, no, yeah, no. I mean, I've been very impressed with OpenLand. It seems like you guys have a lot of features. I still remember the first time we met, we started just video chatting in uh, using OpenLand. How are you thinking about like, because of course, when you were constructing and still constructing OpenLand, how are you thinking about like feature sets? Just would love to kind of hear your thoughts in terms of communities about features that you think that are, that are maybe like the most important for uh, community builders. Yeah, so we have two stakeholders, members and organizers. We develop a lot of new functionality for both. They have very different needs. So for organizers, there is several kind of layers. One is productivity. So that means onboarding and analytics and automation templates, some things like that. Integrations with other services they use like Zoom or whatever. And then the second one would be more around kind of monetization and growth, kind of business stuff. So if in the phase where they want to acquire more members, that means viral invites and promotion within OpenLand discover section and uh, things like that. If they're already in kind of make money mode, then it's like subscriptions and donations and one-time payments, we support that. So this is kind of business level. And then the third level is consulting and support. So that means kind of figure out how to build community, what activities to have. Another big question that we asked a lot is how to build a kind of community hierarchy. So what we know is that larger communities, like almost naturally tend towards hierarchy. So you start with a small group of organizers, say five people. And as you reach, say, a thousand people, you'd start to have chapters or subgroups. So we'll have like a city-based subgroup, like my community, New York, my community, San Francisco, my community, LA, or it would be like um, uh, classes, like class of 2020, class of 2021, class of people who joined in September. Like, so you would group people by the time they joined and they passed together. And so you would need um, like a, a subgroup group leaders like chapter leaders or ambassadors or curators or lieutenants, I don't know how you would call them, kind of officers. And if you look uh, in the history of humankind, then the army, the church, and other organizations like that, they had those, you know, chapters and, uh, you know, generals and captains and colonels or whatever. So they have this hierarchical officer rank system where you would organize like that. And so a lot of global communities and global membership organizations, they have some sort of internal hierarchy. And then so we help, in many cases, volunteering based. 
And we help organizers to figure out how to build a hierarchy, how to work with our volunteers, how to run a volunteer program, how, like what rewards, what rights and privileges these officers of community should have. And so basically, essentially, like the three levels we work at is kind of automation and time saving and organizational things, and then business things, and then actual community thing, which is essentially building a hierarchy of helpers. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I love how you break it down into those, I guess, three different phases or three different ways that you're thinking about it. You know, I mean, just personally, the reason why I haven't really yet done a community is because I'm so worried that, you know, after a week, on a Slack group, even though I love bringing people together, whether that's investors and founders or founders and founders, investors, and investors, I still think that, you know, creating a Slack group or creating an open land group, it's the maintenance and actually making sure that there's still a purpose there rather than it just being, you know, event-based where you can bring together around an event, but that ongoing, it's really tough. It's really difficult. So I totally appreciate you, you know, sharing some of the failures on that end and also how to avoid them. One thing that comes to mind as well, Rishi Garg, who I know that you know, previously came on the show and wrote this really interesting article about how we're at this next phase, social media 2.0, about how people are now, there's almost like the verticalization of communities or social rather, rather than, and really trying to have deeper conversations online. What I think so too, it's a funny thing. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, but when I think about that, and I think about how you have now, you know, almost social media broken up into various almost themes, right, of different topics you're interested in. But at the same time, they could be, you know, private groups, for example. So exclusivity kind of more comes into play rather than being inclusive. How are you thinking about making sure that groups maybe are inclusive moving forward, but you still have that conversation level that is more deeper than what you currently get with social media? Yeah, this is beautiful. So our main thesis here is multiple cultures. So we think that big social like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and uh, Twitter, they are very too uniform. They have a one content policy. They have one principle. So who gets popular and who gets less popular, like what gets retweets or likes. So like on Facebook, you need to be very controversial, like spark outrage and like say things that hurt people feelings and things like that. And then you get a lot of likes and replies and shares. And if you voice a very black and white position on like a certain political issue and you like go all black with no nuance, then you're like being very polarization, right? So if you write something polarized, that makes you very successful. Beyond that, just politics, it's also like the, the stance on kind of self-promotion. Like, is self-promotion okay or not? Or stance on nudity, like is nudity okay or not? Or like dating or whatnot. And so... What we want to enable is multiple cultures. So we think that there shouldn't be a single position on nudity or self-promotion or polarization or nuanced discussion. So I think there might be place for communities that are more polarized. There might be communities that are more friendly. There might be communities that are more combative, competitive, and where people are really aggressively attacking position of each other. There might be a place where it is forbidden and you, you need to be very respectful and nice. And so people can choose which communities to be part of and which not to be part of. And so we want to give organizers tools so they can enable and force and promote the culture they like. And we think that anyone who don't like the uniform big culture of big social media can come to OpenLand and build their own kind of nation, their own space, their own place, where the culture they like is the one that works. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I just think it's really interesting that we're going to see in this next phase 
of media or social media that yes, it becomes more social, but how can you also work and make sure that it's still inclusive? Because I think it is a shift and Rishi talks about this in his piece. So I'm stealing from him a bit because that certainly changed how I thought about this. But the one, it's really a change. He says it's a change from, and hopefully I'm quoting him correctly, but a change from like the me to a we, whereas in social media, as you say, you have to write something polarizing. It's all about you. And you know, you're trying to get the likes, you're trying to get the comments, you're trying to get all the attention on you. Whereas in a group, building a community, it's actually not about you. It's about the community. But you are the gatekeeper to the community, right? Because it's your community. So how can you also make sure, maybe just like any group, how do you make sure that the conversation is great and you're letting in the right people that are you know relevant and excellent for that community, but at the same time, you don't have it too constricting that it's too exclusive and you actually manage like the inclusive part. So this is something that I just, just I think about because I think it's just fascinating. Yeah, one other thing that we see like early glimpses of, not fully realized yet, is going from conversation to action. So when five people talking, it's still me. But when five people do things together, maybe organizing a conference or playing a game or writing an article together, building a shared database or writing something together or like, you know, coordinating shooting like a movie together remotely or something like that, then it's becoming we. So essentially, the current leaders in messaging like Facebook and WhatsApp actually not business messengers in a way that they are not maker messengers. They're not for making things, they about hey, mom, like I'm coming home in one hour or like, have you not forgotten to buy milk or something like this? So they are very like information kind of status based, very short messages, whatnot. While the open land is much more functional for like projects, in general, projects and games. So things that people do together and people across kind of organizations who are not employees of the same team. So like, sure, like Slack is a project messenger, but most people would actually like outside of like, office work, most of their project, like planning a family vacation with three families together, that's a project like relocation or like home remodeling or acquiring a country house or whatever, that's all projects. And so we see more and more chats around projects and the chat around projects is all about we and collaboration and better understanding of people. And when more people can online start doing projects together, I think that's what creates inclusion and what creates mutual understanding, less anonymity and things like that. We have a project with you, so like in Super Next Community, and that's how we grow our relationship, and I really enjoy that. And I love to make my friendships and relationships personal, professional around projects and share things we do together rather than we talk together. No, absolutely. I completely agree. I know we talked about this before too, like building, you know, communities that actually evolve around events, whether it's open land, whether it's upstream, whether there's a lot of different communication tools out there. So what's next? Because the features on open land seem pretty awesome. What's your, I guess, your vision for open land and where are you trying to take it? Yeah, first of all, I think we have a really good fit with uh, community builders, community organizers. So we need to just scale that. So we work with community organizers. So if anyone who is listening wants to build a community for their portfolio or for their customers or for their event attendees or for their uh, students of their uh, online course, yeah, ping me, openland.com slash Yuri or just openland.com and we'll help you get off the ground, help you understand why openland is better than Slack and Discord and other tools you might consider. And so that's one. We see those verticals and in each vertical we would like to enable as many. We want to basically help community organizers reach their full potential and not burn out. So as you said, the biggest concern is time cost is like, would I have enough time to maintain it and keep it quality and keep it nice and tight? And we can help around that because as I said, we give community manager help. We make 
things automate every routine work. And we kind of bring the best practices from other community organizers to your community so that you don't need to invent everything. You just do what works for other communities already. So that's kind of one. Number two is uh, right now the, the members, the regular kind of everyday people who join OpenLand, they join initially by invite to individual community and eventually we want to have a better member experience who are not coming to specific community but rather just install open land say from app store and in the app they can discover all the communities find the right people find the right places with shared values and whatnot so we already have a discovery function but we feel like there can be 10x more there so those are the kind of two immediate goals obviously a lot of features are added like every week so like that that's awesome. What has been some of like the hardest part of starting OpenLand once you made the shift to make a uh, platform for communities and for communication? Because I remember we talked earlier about how your entire life now is on OpenLand and you know you communicate with your family and like that. And I had this conversation too a long time ago now with uh, Mike Gaffari on an earlier episode about switching costs and how friction right now is like one second of your time. Like the amount of time it takes to download an app, which really doesn't take long at all, but it's still like a process. And there's so many other companies that we just mentioned, Slack, Discord, WhatsApp on the personal side. But what are some of the ways that you've been able to fight that friction? Yeah, so we are on all platforms, web, mobile, desktop. We have the fastest sign up for community products on the market. So when you invite your members, it's the smallest number of fields. There is no passwords. You don't need to remember anything. There is no login with Facebook or Google with anything. It's just phone or email and both works. And you can have both on your account or just one, whatever you like. And it's one-time codes, which is super fast. And uh, once you logged in, we keep you logged in. So it's super easy. And uh, the friction is set to the minimum. And I would say here is a surprising thing. We have essentially attention inequality in the society. So there are people who receive too much attention and there are people who receive not enough attention. Very much like with uh, economic capital, there is social capital inequality. Famous people, people in demand. And when people talk about friction and like Mike Gaffari and others, he is attention rich. I want to talk to him. Many people want to talk to him. While most people in the world are attention poor, they don't have enough attention, especially quality attention, especially attention not of people who are trying to sell them like a burger, but uh, you know, friends and people who understand them and people who would listen to them. And so the vast majority of people on the internet, they would go through all kinds of friction to find a place where they are loved and listened and heard to and where they can talk and where they can be accepted who they are and whatnot. So we are worried only about friction and the power users, the attention rich people. They create value, they bring their audiences, they are very important, we work with them. But the vast majority of people in the world it's not a friction problem, it's the attention problem. And the problem is like you signed up for Facebook and you all added your 10 friends and they added you. And then everyone sees a Facebook feed or YouTube feed or TikTok feed with celebrities, creators, professionals, the like professional and semi-professional perfectly made content. You stop actually seeing much content from your friends. Your friends get afraid that their content is not good enough. They start posting content as frequent and it's all around feed. So there is less focus on direct messaging, more focus on the feed. And so despite the fact you are friends on Facebook, you stop talking to your friends on Facebook or WhatsApp or whatever. And then that makes the loneliness. And so that's why the people who have not enough quality attention and love on the internet for them, they would go through friction. 
no problem. And uh, with power users, it's a different game because we solve specific problems for them. Yeah, I think to make Afari's point, he wasn't really talking about that part when it came to friction and more so we were talking about like, we were using the example of like Uber and Lyft and there's been trying to be like a third player in the space, but the friction to actually download a third app, like why would you need it? And so I think that what I was kind of referring to was you already have Slack, you already have Discord, like the actual onboarding experience for OpenLab, but I think you described it as well, that it's very, very easy, the actual onboarding process. But still, like, I mean, it's funny because we've come into a world where things just load so fast and so quickly that a friction could like one second is a huge friction, you know? And so it's like downloading like a new app. So I'm always just intrigued when you have, you know, a new communication platform, what are maybe some of like the methods that you're using in order to to try to release that friction. But it seems like if you already have these big, you know, celebrities or folks that are actually being onboarded, then their audiences will come. Yeah, we onboard the organizers, they bring their communities. Yeah, so that's how we grow. I would also say that maybe what Mike was describing is that you need to be a first and second player in the category. So the friction comes if you're below in the category. Like once, like say Zoom and Meet is there, like being number three video call platform is very hard or like whatever. So our category is social messaging. It's talking to new people. And here's a very quick question. Like what's your number one app talking to new people? Where you discover and start talking to new people? So I'll be honest, it's not an app. Well, it is different, but like upstream events for me, that's kind of where I mean, but that's very, very different to, you know, an actual text. Yeah, but it's a new emerging app that most people don't have installed. Yeah, exactly. I would say like for me as well, like I use like Lunch Club to meet new people, but that's also very, very different to the actual chatting. Yeah, like I'm, I'm not sure if they have a mobile app and and you can get like a one meeting, three meetings per week. So it's not like you go into that app like with direct messaging and whatnot. Yeah, and uh, even if the meeting was successful, you still will go to a different app to continue the conversation with them. So yeah, basically we think that the social messaging is an emerging category without a clear leader and without like the switching costs and not that great because there is nothing to switch from just yet. Because basically we think that Hey, Slack is for talking for your colleagues at work and say WhatsApp is talking to your parents and OpenLand is talking to new interesting people you meet professionally and socially. And uh, essentially, if there is anything that we replace, that would probably be LinkedIn. So uh, because, you know, this is how you build your network, like early in college and career, moving to new cities, immigrating, staying at home while, you know, having new kids and things like that. So that's where we fit in. And we don't feel like um, there is a competitive friction for us. So what is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Yeah, personally, it's probably a biography of a person named uh, Sergei Korolev. Do you know who that is? I do not, actually. Yeah, I think it's my personal biggest inspiration in life. I think one of the biggest, like, best human beings of all time. It's a person who uh, was a chief designer for a Soviet space program. It's a person who put the first person in space, built the first rockets. It's, it's the Musk before Elon Musk. And when he started his career, he was designing airplanes without engines. It was like pl- planners who would, you know, just go from mountain on a wing at early. And he ended his career by, by like, putting person in space and Soviet program also was on, on Mars and on Venus or the only program to be on Venus. They also reached the moon without humans. So he did a lot of work and with very limited resources as well. And funny fa- fact is that once he put the person in space, there was like a Nobel Prize inquiry and 
Soviet Union actually kept his name secret. So they said, you can only award Nobel Prize to the Soviet nation as a whole. <laughs> so that's why his name is not as known kind of in Western countries. But Sergei Korolev is kind of my, my personal biggest hero. And I think one of the highest achieving human beings in, in human history. Professionally, early on, four steps for Epiphany, like customer development book, uh, helped kind of understand how startups are made. It was maybe not best written book, but it has very important ideas that evolved or got new names and other people can co-brand them under different names. But I think it was really kind of explaining that startups can be a result of a kind of a structured process rather than a pure luck. I think that's what inspired me because I felt like now like you're in control of what you can build rather than just buying a lottery ticket and pray for the best. Yeah, no, I love that. I'm really excited to add both of these to our book list. This will be really cool. That's amazing. Four steps to Epiphany, you can probably find like a slide deck or something, so you don't need to read the full book. It's pretty verbose, as in kind of just a lot of words for a few very important ideas, while it has good charts. So if you just, you know, read the charts, that, that's the best. And Korolev, yeah, there are a few books about him. I think a few are translated. And in general, like the Soviet space program as a whole, as a model, like as an alternative history of the kind of entrepreneurship is interesting because it was not motivated by capital. So there were like, there was no financial gain. There was no incorporation, no stock, no IPO. So the whole kind of moral code behind it, like just to give you a little bit of context. So Sergei Korolev, by the way, was in prison during Second World War because he was close to one of the early military leaders that Stalin put kind of, I think, killed. And so in, in the Second World War, at the end of it, Americans threw a nuclear bomb on Japan and Soviet was very worried because, you know, <laughs> the country can be destroyed next. And so they actually went to prison. They found Sergei Korolev and they released him and say, hey, look, can you please build a rocket that can bring our bombs to America as fast as possible? <laughs> and he said... Sure, I can build like rockets for delivered bombs, but can I also like build rockets for like the, you know, putting humans in space and, you know, and things like that. And so the Sputnik moment, remember when Soviet kind of satellites flew over the United States, it was a moment when U.S. realized, okay, Soviets have the rocket that can deliver the bomb anytime, like faster than, you know, bombers at the airplane. And so there is no protection. And so that was the moment of vulnerability for the United States. And then they realized they need to reinvest their own money and their own resources into now. So it was a lot of kind of intersection of military strategy and the human space exploration. It was like kind of the military and the non-military aspects were very, very much intertwined. Cool. No, that's fascinating. It's really interesting. I'm really excited to add that to the book list. Sounds like a book that I need to read. As you said, like it's someone who wasn't motivated by money or built rockets, not motivated by money. So it's really, really fascinating. My last question that I have is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Talk to more people. <laughs> yeah. So I think as many people say, we're an average of people around us. And so sometimes you grew out of your current kind of referral group or core group and you like to get to the next step, you also need to have uh, new people around yourself. Not necessarily that the people who are around yourself like limiting you in any way, but you need to go to new places. You need to talk to new people and be in this kind of social discovery mode. Like early in career, it's psychologically easy. As you grow older, it kind of become harder. Also like maybe kids, maybe staying at home, maybe immigrating, maybe like spending time mostly with customers and your team. So talking to new people in a natural way, especially in the remote era online, like build real meaningful online friendship. So this is a new advice. Like no one would three years ago say, hey, you need great meaningful online friendships. No one would put that as a goal. 
but I think now people start to realize that's important. And so I advise more people to try it out. I love that. And, you know, meet people in Oberland, right? Absolutely. We are the place to do it. You are the place to do it. Absolutely. Yuri, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This has been fun. Yeah, fun for me as well. So many interesting questions. And there you have it. It was great fun having Yuri on. Feel free to follow him on Twitter at Yuri Lifshitz. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.